Let's just camp here for a few moments in prayer. Our Father, it is good. As the disciples noted so many years ago, it is just good to be here together in your presence, the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords who gave his life for us so that we could be here and worship and live out our lives under the glorious supervision of the great shepherd who loves us. So our Father, we pray this morning as we now turn our attention to the word of God that you would reacquaint our hearts with the superlative descriptions as best humans can record and rehearse and restate the greatness of Jesus, who he is, that we might not grow discouraged or bewildered beyond rescue, but that we might know who we are, whose we are, and who is our God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a royal funeral this week, in case you didn't know, with all kinds of pomp and pageantry. It's stated that Four billion people around the world saw this funeral, witnessed this funeral, were part of this funeral. And I'm sure most of you saw some parts of it somewhere. It was filled with honor guards and procession and plenty of time and circumstance. It's stated that a quarter of a million people walked by the sarcophagus of the queen and how many more millions lined the streets to get a glimpse of a casket passed by of a great queen we all recognize that a wonderful queen and I don't know how, what you were thinking about this week or I don't know what you're thinking about as you watched all of the ceremony that was going on. But I'll tell you what I was thinking about. I was thinking about another funeral of a greater king. I was thinking about this regional queen for a small time window in, on earth over a very limited amount of the world over against the king of kings and the day he was nailed to the cross and the funeral for him. There was no pageantry. There was no honor guard. There was no planning. There was no pomp and circumstance. In fact, most people didn't even notice. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. <laughs> Where was Matthew, John? Bartholomew, where were they? Took him down from the indignity of the cross and hurriedly got him into 
a burial site before the sunset. Wrapped him in a gown that was blood-stained and carried him to a burial tomb with maybe three women, the Marys, walking and watching. So many today are still convinced that Jesus was just a carpenter stonemason who became a rebel rabbi who ruffled a few religious feathers in a time that's totally irrelevant to us. And that's where they've parked Jesus, if they've even heard of him at all. It says in the Bible, he came to be among us. And though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. There's no greater picture of that than the time that he was taken from the cross to the tomb. But the Bible tells us something entirely different about Jesus. And the text in the book of Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is perhaps one of the most stunning presentations of the divinity of Jesus Christ that you will ever read. If we're allowed to have favorite parts of the Bible, this is among my very favorite places to camp and look. When discouragement threatens to sweep over your life or hopeless despair or, or bewilderment or whatever emotion that isn't healthy is gripping your life, a fresh read of this text should change everything. So let's read it together. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is, now the he that is being referred to here, of course, just go back a few phrases. It refers to the son that God loves, the father loves, referring to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, or better, in him, we'll talk about that in a moment, in him, all things were created, things in heaven, And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of God. Isn't that spectacular? If someone asks you, who is Jesus? Make sure you take him to this text. This is where you can take them in a very concise way to show people 
who Jesus is. He stands out from all others in all of creation. Jesus is. We have presented for us here. So this morning, I want to, to note that surely the Apostle Paul was, as, as a, an Old Testament scholar himself, had in mind the prophetic psalm and much other, many others, but this particular prophetic psalm in mind when he quilled or had his associate quill this letter to the Colossians. Psalm 89, 27, which is a messianic psalm, says this, I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In referencing God's Messiah, the psalmist used these words, and Paul breaks down this text, or we can break down this text as Paul wrote it or framed it or structured it, using this word firstborn. In, there's two sections to this group of verses. The firstborn uh, of creation, of all creation, and the firstborn from among the dead. That's how it structures itself. In line with this psalm, the Messiah would be the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So with these echoes of Old Testament prophetic description, we have here this morning the center of attention of the new churches that Paul was planting and are being planted to this very day. And the center of attention in church planting is Jesus Christ and must always remain that. Now, in Colossae, where this church was, they were the epicenter at the time of creation and moral controversy. As we move forward to the past, our church here is the epicenter of controversy over creation and morality. Nothing has changed. In fact, we've really uh, as we've really um, fast-forwarded to the past in, the, in our day. This new group of people were now representing a new way of living and serving the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, to the Jews who were the mainline tradition, mainline tradition Judaism that had strayed long ago from its, its respect of the Word of God and had long ago sold out to, to traditions, were certainly against the teaching of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as God, Jesus as the image of the invisible God and creator. The pagan power brokers, on the other hand, the Roman pagan power brokers that were also uh, in charge of things, were certainly against this new group of people who were paying allegiance and homage to the one King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of Glory, Jesus Christ. So there they were in the squeeze of that. We live exactly in the same squeeze. From mainline traditionalists who have strayed a long time ago from the truth of the scriptures and are continuing to embrace cultural ways. And from the squeeze of the power brokers politically in our country that are seeking to remove any vestige of remembrance of the living God and who he is. So here we have this grand proclamation for the church that is as fresh today as it was the day it was written. To take us on a journey this morning to a very doctrinal journey to once again 
strengthen our hearts with who Jesus is. So let's get going. Let's, let's dig in. Let's unpackage what we have here under the idea of structuring the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from among the dead. So Jesus is classified or called the firstborn of all creation. This word isn't very helpful in English because we think only, when we think of firstborn, we think of, well, our children and who was the firstborn in the family. And surely that was the meaning and that was a meaning of firstborn in the, in the ancient Near East. But the idea of firstborn was so much greater than the, the weight that we put on firstborn in our time, in our, our culture. And in particular, the firstborn was, was not just talking about necessarily the firstborn in the family, but of rank and priority and status. In fact, the word firstborn, bakar, breaks down in, in its, in its um, morphology uh, as, as, as the beginning, as the, the same word as the beginning. So it, it's, it's literally talking about someone at the beginning. And that's how this works its way out. That's why Jesus, when he was in a, 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 a game of who's smarter, the Pharisees or Jesus, he, he pointed out to them that before Abraham was, I am. And they were like, wait a second, you're not even 50 years old yet. Now, the guy was thir- probably 30 years old, and somehow they jumped to 50, which has always been odd to me. He must have looked a lot older from the, just the weight he was carrying of where he was going and what he was going to do. That's because Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was the firstborn. For the the Jews, this is a a remarkable statement, a title, a rank. They, They also, they personified the wisdom of God and always held to the idea that that along with God was the wisdom of God in some personified way, although they were not certain how to break that out until Jesus came. And Jesus, as Paul is now writing, is the wisdom of God, is very God, is the firstborn. Paul's connecting the Old Testament scriptures and places Jesus at creation for those skeptical Jews. But further, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. I'm convinced that Paul, as he was writing this, was looking around at all of the representations or misrepresentations of the gods of the Roman people. All the statues and idols of which Paul wrote in Romans 1.28, these makers of images, these Gentiles and idols, exchanging the glory of God for corruptible likenesses. And so Paul states that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Remember when Paul visited Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, was wandering around their agora and noticing that he said, you must be a very religious people because I see all kinds of representations of, of the things that you worship. He said, but I, in particular, my eye is caught by this one that says to the unknown God, uh, that's the God I want to talk to you about, the God. All these representations are made by you. I want to talk about the God who wasn't created, who is the creator. I want to talk to you about the one who is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the Christ, the physical disclosure of the invisible God. It says in the word of God, no one has seen God because he is spirit. However, John writes that Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, has made God known to us. 
And now he writes, he is the image of the invisible God. The man who walked among us, who was, who was executed on a Roman cross, is God and is the only God and creator of everything. God visible. The um, deacon Steve Croker sent along a statistic to me this week noticing that I was interested in church statistics from last week's sermon and this one made me feel even worse by put out by Ligonier and Lifeway Research Ministries and I won't talk to you about all of the stats but one really really distressed me it was a statement made and you're to respond to the statement and the statement is this goes this way Jesus was a great teacher but not God Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% of evangelicals in the survey agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Can, can you imagine if 43% of us, if we were, if we were 43% of the evangelicals in this room are watching us, Agreed with that statement? You don't agree with that statement, do you? That Jesus was a great teacher but was not God? You can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. You can't. You don't have to be a seminary graduate. You don't have to be a scholar. You can't possibly read this section of Scripture and conclude anything else I mean, I'm just telling you what you already know. I'm telling you what you can already read with your own eyes. I'm telling you what you already believe, what you already are standing for. It's right here. It can't be missed. I don't know what evangelical churches these people go to or how they can call themselves that. Not only um, was Jesus at creation it says he's the firstborn of creation not only was he at the front of the line Paul says for in him I'm going to translate it that way because I think it's 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 the translation because later he says by him for him I think for in him all things were created Christ is the source of all creation from the divine imagination of Jesus Christ, the living God himself, creation came. Look what it says here. All things were created by him, for in him, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. The spirit world, of which so many people serving the Lord are afraid, they're under the authority of the creator, Jesus Christ. He's the creator of everything. It was pointed out, and I noted this morning, pointed out by a person that in him is repeated four times in the text. In Christ. Creator of everything. Any evolutionary process at all, by the way, Christians... 
puts Christology at stake. It flies in the face of what, how Christ is presented in this text. Creation is his handiwork, and it's entirely subject to him. And nothing poses any real threat to us because Christ is the creator of all things. As I look at this and as I look at the phrase, as we walk, walk through this phrase, in him, by him, at the end of this verse, and for him, the, the expansiveness of this, the, 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 uh, the nature of Jesus Christ's dominion over all of creation is, is quite remarkable here and, and should leave us with um, an impression of confidence and security and in Christ, our sufficient Savior. In Him, by Him, for Him. God has no other agent. Not wisdom, not law. You can only get right with God through Christ. Christ alone. He is God. Can't bypass Him. That's why Jesus said to them, believe in God Believe also in me, in my Father's house are many mansions, what he said to his disciples. And then he went on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip spoke up, I think wished he didn't, and said, oh, just show us the Father, we'll believe. And he said, Philip, 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 have you been with me so long? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Christ presents, the word of God presents Christ, the, the, the creator of all things. And, and on the basis of that, you know, I, as, I, as I stated this morning to the earlier group, I, I personally am unable to recognize in this world any actions or behaviors or redefinitions that undermine or tamper with the human representation of the image of God or anything that he's created. His supreme authority and his creative design. I, I don't, I'm not sure about all of you, but I, I'm, I'm unable. I, I don't have the authority. The creation as Jesus has made it, everything that's in the world, visible and invisible, all authorities, rulers and powers, human beings made in the image of God, male and female. I'm unable to recognize any tampering with the creation as Christ has made it. I don't have the authority. It's, it's above my pay grade to do. I can't recognize anything like that. And, and we live in a world, you know, that, that recognizes somehow the importance of the stewardship of the earth, which actually is our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. He has given us the responsibility to take care of what he's created. No, deny, no denying that. But he has also given us the responsibility to steward how he has created and what he has created. He has given us the responsibility to steward his design, his wise design of his creation. We are to hold out as his representation, representatives on earth the design that he has made, particularly the image of God in the creation of humankind, male and female. There's a beautiful structure there. 
that God made man in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. A chiasm that says the essence of mankind is the binary distinction of male and female. That's what the creation design is. And it is up to us to uphold this reminder by, human, by God's human creation of the image of God. Jesus is the invis- image of the invisible God. We are representatives of God and, his, and, and made in his image. So I'll tell you, when, if it comes to the day they ask me to put pronouns on my shirt, they're going to say, in him, by him, for him. And I think you all have every right to self-identify as in him, by him, for him. Because that's who we are. He is before all things, which means Christ is eternal. If you were confused at all with the firstborn language, Paul clears it up here. Verse 17, he is before all things. He's eternal. Not created. He is the creator. Not only is he that, but in him, all things hold together at the end of verse 17. He's the sustainer of all things, keeping creation together, keeping everything from coming unglued, keeping this universe together. And if he can hold the whole universe together, beloved, he can hold your life together from coming unglued. I know it feels like sometimes everything's starting to just go apart, but Christ is the sustainer. Look to him, trust in him. He is the one. By the way, our Christology that develops out of this, our understanding the doctrine of Jesus Christ and origins teaches us that it's not deistic. In other words, Jesus Christ didn't just make everything, walk away and say, I hope it all works out for you. That's not what we're taught here. God did not walk away. He continued to sustain his creation and watch over his creation. And he doesn't, as one writer puts, he doesn't just hold some sort of mess together. He is the rationale, the rhyme, the rhythm, and the reason for this world. He is the operating system over all operating systems. The cosmos is not self-sufficient. The universe cannot survive or exist or keep from coming unglued without Jesus Christ. Those who rebel against Christ themselves are are, are dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they admit it or not. Everything they do, everything they have, every breath they breathe is as a result of Jesus Christ, their creator, whether they recognize him or not. And so now Paul takes the second part and says, and out of his creation, Jesus Christ is calling to himself a new creation. He is the firstborn from among the dead. In the New Testament, by the way, any time the word singular, or the word firstborn is singular, it refers to Jesus Christ. A few texts, Romans 8, 8, 29, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Acts 26, 23, Revelation 1, 5, always in the reference of Jesus as the firstborn is referencing Jesus Christ and his supremacy or priority or rank. 
He is the supreme commander of the cosmos. And he came to earth. And, and I, you know, Paul um, points out here that he is the firstborn from among the dead. You know, those who are audience to this letter, be Paul, are you talking about the man crucified in Jerusalem? You, you know, can we get this right in our heads? Is that who you're talking about? I mean, do you know all the, you heard about all the dying and all that took place and that he was carted off and put in a tomb? You, Paul, you know about all of that? Is this, this who you're talking about? So Paul makes certain to say he's the firstborn from among the dead. When we think about the supreme commander of the cosmos, the creator of all coming to earth, we talk about the condescension of God who would take on flesh and live among us. But perhaps there's no greater depth of condescension than that the author of life, the creator of all good things, the God of all lights and glory, would taste death for us, would visit the realm of the dead, there is no more foreign place to God than the realm of the tombs and dying. So when you try to grasp what Jesus was willing to do to rescue you and me and put us in his family, there, there is no way for our human minds to comprehend what God actually was willing to do for us by dying for us. And so we have this description of him being at the front of the line from among the dead. And Paul is talking now about a living Savior who rose again and now continues to live in, in, in supreme reign over us by drinking deeply of the consequences of our sin that, weren't, that wasn't his own. Jesus Christ is able to call out for himself from creation a new creation. And he, Paul says he's the head of the church. Only through our connection to the head of the church do we have life. You know, there's any number of people, people who could walk out of this church at any time and while we would miss them, the church itself wouldn't wither and die. But if Jesus Christ left us, if Jesus Christ left you, you would wither and die because he's the one who enables us to bear fruit. He's the one who enables us to grow. He's the one who's called us to fill the nations with the, the uh, awareness of his glory. He's the one who called us to send Sue and Jason to Germany because he is the head of the church. And we exist to serve our head. We don't exist to meet the needs of people. We don't exist to preserve this church building and this church gathering at the corner of Ritson and Roslyn. Although those things come along with it. We exist for the sole purpose of Christ Jesus. We exist for the sole purpose of worshiping Him. 
We exist for the sole purpose of making his name great, of making him famous. We exist for the purpose of Jesus Christ alone. And that's why Paul says, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Jesus Christ tasted of death for us so that the last thing that existed in the realm of the universe that appeared to be outside of his supreme control, i.e. death, could be brought into, could be brought under the control of God. That's what it means for him to be firstborn among the dead. That's what it means so that he would have the supremacy. So that we who lived our whole lives afraid of death would know and would worship the one who is supreme over all, including death. There is nothing in all the universe that can overcome our God. He has overcome everything. Jesus Christ has overcome death for us. And that's why Paul mentions, by his blood shed on the cross at the very end of this section. Since he's supreme over the cosmos, he's the only reality that's entirely sufficient. There is no alternative hope in our lives. Depending on, regardless of how hopeless your situation is or seems at the moment. I never forget in the scriptures, the time when many who were following Jesus were leaving him. Because he was teaching hard things in John chapter 6. And he looked at his disciples, the ones he had called out, and he said to them, are you going to leave too? Do you remember what they said to him? Where would we go? I hope that phrase is settled in your heart because I know that you have lots of hard circumstances in your life and you've lots of you are crushed in hope and lots of you are 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 frustrated and discouraged and and lots of you have deep deep family struggles and all of that and there's voices whispering in your head why don't you just give up on the Lord he's not helping you It's too hard to serve him. There's too much sacrifice. I hope settled in your heart is an answer back. Where would I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. This one who we're describing, the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the creator of all things, supreme over all, holding all together, sustainer of all things, eternal God, firstborn among the dead, has risen from the dead, conquered it, vanquished death. Where would we go? Where would we go? Although rightful Lord of all things sin had caused and untamed obstacle, a yet untamed obstacle, death. And by his death and resurrection, he has defeated the last enemy of our lives. And it tells us that all of creation eagerly awaits its own rescue from its fallenness. 
So Paul absolutely delights in telling this church what they've heard before from Epaphras, that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for, because, verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. What more superlatives can we keep adding to this? How can we keep saying it a different way and yet Paul does? All of the fullness of God. It pleased Almighty God to make Jesus Christ the place of his fullness. There is no more God essence somewhere else. All that is God resides in Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other religions that can claim to have some other God or gods. Because the God is entirely resident in the one God, Jesus Christ. The fullness of God dwells in him. God chooses to completely and permanently dwell in Christ. All there is of God is in Christ. Paul writes it in verse 9 of chapter 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So we may reflect the glory of God, but Christ is the glory of God. So people have often said to me, and I'm sure they've asked you, and maybe you've had this question as well in your heart and mind. Why would God make a world that he knew, because he knows all things, would rebel against him? Why would he do that? And why would God make a, a being called Satan that would lead rebellious forces of the majority of the world, lead a conflict against God and his people? Why? It is God's intention for his glory that he would reveal to us his creation, everything about him, all of the fullness of God, which includes his wrath, his forgiveness, his willingness to reconcile, his mercy, his grace. It is through a fallen world that God has revealed to us and shown to us all of his glorious attributes. And all of the fullness of God dwells in Christ who is himself. The son of God, the triune God. And as in the glory of God and in the supremacy of Christ... He has chosen to reconcile to himself all things, to demonstrate to us, to demonstrate to creation, to demonstrate to those spirits in this world who reject him. We'll see that Christ's cross victory embarrassed the demons. To reconcile to himself a wayward world, a world that has fallen. The power to reconcile, to make peace, it says here. 
in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Through the blood of Christ, peace is made for the The reconciler of all things, willingly or forcefully. The invitation goes out throughout all the world, day in and day out, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only Savior of the world. There is no other name given among men whereby we may be saved. That name goes out throughout all the world. And yet the majority of the world reject him and continue to reject him. But one day, Christ will reconcile all of creation to himself. Fallen, the fallen animal kingdom, the fallen plant kingdom, the fallen human, human world to himself. You say, what, is, is everybody going to be saved? No. It says here he will reconcile and make, to make peace. He will make peace forcibly by those who reject him. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And he will banish those who reject him for all eternity. He will make peace forever when he reconciles all things to himself. And those who've responded to the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf, turning from their sins, repenting from their sins, acknowledging themselves as a sinner and turning to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and Master and only God, will be saved for all eternity, reconciled to Jesus, reconciled to God. That's the message of the cross. There is no way to interpret life or meaning or purpose other than Jesus Christ. Christ is the meaning of life, is the purpose of life. You are not an accident. Neither are you sufficient. But knowing Christ is the meaning of life. And my question to you this morning is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, as the only God and the only name by which men and women may be saved. Do you know him in your heart? Do you serve him? Do you love him? Do you worship him? Is he your God? That's the question of this morning, for Jesus' sake. Father, I pray this morning that you will embed in our hearts, in our minds, in our very fabric of our being a settled conviction of who Jesus Christ is the God the only God the only way to God because he is God the only Savior because he is the one who died for us the only victor over death because he died for us and rose again. The only meaning to life, the only purpose to life, the only way to interpret life. Oh God, may we know our God, experience our Savior. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.